Welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Liz Kelly. With the NFL season a week away and the Ringer's fantasy football coverage gearing up, we have released our first ever Fantasy Football Hall of Fame. We assembled a panel of voters, including Bill Simmons, Cousin Sal, Robert Mays, Mallory Rupin, and more, to induct the 25 best fantasy football players of all time. You can find the rankings by going directly to fantasyfootball.theringer.com. And for more fantasy football coverage, check out the Fantasy Football Podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Michael Bauman and I'm a staff writer at The Ringer. Uh, Before we get started, I want to point you to a couple of Zach Cram tours de force that we have in our hopper this week. One on the star who got away for every Major League Baseball team. So Max Muncy for Oakland, Fernando Tatis for the White Sox and so on. Uh, If that makes you feel sad, this will make you feel happy. Uh, He's got another story on key players who could influence the pennant race after returning from injury. I also had a chat with Brown's chief strategy officer, Paul D. Podesta, about what sabermetrics principles can be applied to other sports. So please, when you have a minute, go check all that out. Uh, But for right now, here's Zach Cram. So I'm joined, as always, by Zach Cram. Zach, you want to talk about the Los Angeles Angels, so I presume you want to talk about Shohei Otani or Mike Trout, right? I think indirectly we'll talk about Shohei Otani and Mike Trout, but they are not the genesis for this conversation. Wow, that's fascinating. Why don't you tell me what you have noticed and uh, what we're going to end up talking about? So Griffin Canning, the Angels rookie starter, uh, has mild elbow inflammation and the angels announced that they're going to shut him down for the rest of the season. And that's not in and of itself worth a podcast segment. I think what is, is that Griffin Canning has thrown 90 and a third innings this season. And that means because he shut down for the season, he will not reach a hundred innings. Felix Pena, the angels innings leader at 96 and a third is also out for the rest of the season with an injury. So he won't reach a hundred innings And now we have a chance at this year's Angels becoming the first team ever to not have a single pitcher exceed 100 innings. Trevor Cahill leads with 89 and a third right now, but he has moved to the bullpen. He's been really ineffective this year with an ERA over six. So unless he throws 11 more innings between now and the rest of the year, the Angels will set an an unwanted record, I would assume. But I think it's worth having this conversation as we talk more broadly about changing pitching dynamics with the opener and third time through the order and all the other baseball buzzwords that have come up over the, over the last few years about whether we think this is actually going to signal the future or whether it's just a one-off thing precipitated by a bunch of unfortunate injuries, Shohei Otani's injury, of course, the tragic death of Tyler Skaggs. And I, I think it could be one or the other, but I have more thoughts. Yeah, I, well, I think it's important to... And I don't think we're saying anything controversial by pointing out that this is not plan A. You know, that's we talked about the the Dodgers that, you know, this is, I think, representative of a larger trend. But like the Dodgers a few years ago, signing seven or eight starting pitchers, knowing that they were going to go through all of them, you know, the depth that the the Astros have had this season. And then they still had to go out and get uh, Zach Greinke at the deadline to fill out their rotation. And so this is part of, you know, I think characteristically for the angels they've been struck by a lot of bad injury luck they've you know otani and yeah and skaggs obviously like you said these are not things that you plan for 
so this is like an exceptional case, but I guess all record-setting teams for good or ill are exceptional cases, right? Yeah, and I think there are a few other things beyond that, like the uh, 2012 Colorado Rockies, which some people might remember for their experiment where they didn't let anyone throw 75 pitches. Good. I'm glad you said, I'm glad you uh, you mentioned what we were supposed to remember the 2012 Rockies for, because I, I was about thing, to say, yeah. like, I assure you, I do not remember the 2012 Rockies, but yes. Yeah. So they uh, are the only team ever to only have one pitcher exceed 100 innings. Every other team has had two or more. The Angels are going to also become the first team since the 1919 Phillies uh, to have no pitcher make 20 starts in a season. So there are all these sort of indicators that point toward the same conclusion. The thing is, like, I don't think that in and of itself is a model. You have to get through 14 to 1500 innings in a season, depending on, you know, your number of extra inning games, the number of road games you lose and only have to pitch eight innings. But that is a lot of innings to not have anyone reach 100 or 120 innings. You can't have 15 different guys throw 100 innings each. I don't think. Do you think that's the future or is that not really the case? So I'm going to do something that I hate and I'm going to talk about how this uh, impacts my Diamond Mind League. Uh, So I I play in in two leagues, one that's set one year in the past and another that's set 13 years in the past. And I'm just playing uh, in each of these leagues. It's so much more difficult to fill out a starting rotation because there just aren't like five starting pitchers who you can plug in to, to put in there for, for a whole season. But the roster rules are the same for, for both leagues. So it's not like, you know, I've got 33 roster spots for my 2006 league and the same number of roster spots for my 2018 league. And I still have to fill the same number of innings. I still have to, for that matter, fill the same number of position player spots. And so it limits, and you know, what I've noticed going through this league is it limits your options in terms of platooning and position player specialists and filling out your bullpen um, when you just need innings volume so badly. And major league teams have more flexibility. Like we're seeing guys go on and off the 40 man roster. The Mariners have used, uh, more pitchers in the past two years than I think the Cubs used from 1900 to 1915, you know? So this is, uh, it's a, it's a way the game is evolving. I think, you know, the expanding rosters coming up in the next couple of years are going to help with this a little bit. Maybe we go to six, six man rotations full time. Um, you know, maybe we go to, to some kind of piggyback starter arrangement for one of the spots in the rotation to keep innings down. But this is like, one thing that I've so there are two things actually that I've noticed in the past couple of years. I just pulled this up in 2014, 88 pitchers uh, qualified for the ERA title, and that was about in line with the way things had gone. Somewhere between 80 and 95 pitchers um, had qualified for the ERA title. Uh, looks like every year since essentially the strike, and it had been the same, you know, all the way back to to before the last round of expansion, and so. That dropped off a cliff. We got into the 70s in 2015 and 16, and then 2017, 2018 were the two lowest years. Uh, they're the two lowest years of the expansion era in terms of pitchers qualifying for the ERA title. And so, like, not only do you not have the 200 inning starter anymore, you don't have the 160 inning starter anymore. And so, you know, maybe this is good for you in your case to build up James Paxton. Um, but that it's it just has to it has to change the way that you you construct a team and you know so there's probably an element to which you know you're going to lose one guy to TJ but another guy's going to come back 
uh, and you sort of plan your season that way. But it's just it just seems like an unnecessarily comp. Well, it seems like an inelegant way to manage your to manage, uh, you know, team construction. And maybe it is necessary because pitching is just so physically deleterious now that you can't do it that much. And if you do, you're going to get hurt and miss extended periods of time. So, you know, I don't know what the what the solution is, or even if there if there is one, or if this is just something that, you know, old old cranks like me need to embrace. And and this is just the, the way the baseball is going to work now. That was a very long winded answer. And you said you eventually wanted to talk again. But yeah, that's that's sort of where I am. Well, I think you rightly are focusing on the top end, like what's happening to starting pitchers. And there are a number of reasons why starting pitchers are throwing fewer innings from teams having caution with injuries to understanding the third time through the order penalty and so on and so on. But I'm more interested in what happens at the bottom end, because to fill all of those innings, if you are not going to have a starting rotation full of pitchers who can go 120 or more innings, you need those bottom end innings totals to come up and kind of meet them in the middle because as we've said you need to fill up 15 to 1600 innings regardless so if that's going to happen what happens to the pitchers like edwin diaz who likes to only go one inning at a time and is probably a lot less effective when he has to pitch more someone like araldus chapman has not pitched more than a single inning in any game this year and aaron boone has talked a lot about how the Yankees are taking a longer-term view with handling their relievers. The Yankees are the only team in baseball not to have any pitcher throw three days in a row this year. They don't let pitchers throw even four times in five days at all. Uh, And even with that, they're still talking about limiting the innings of pitchers like Chapman and Ottavino and Britton down the stretch to keep them healthy for October. Uh, I think it's worth also noting here, like the Angels pitching staff has been really bad this year. They rank, uh, at the moment as we record Tuesday afternoon, they rank 26th in baseball with an ERA over five. And a team like the Rays last year has succeeded in being creative with their innings totals, but they also had Blake Snell, who won the Cy Young, and Ryan Yarbrough, who even pitching most of his games in relief in sort of the bulk role after an opener, he threw almost 150 innings. So I think all of these points just underscore that, in theory, it makes sense to limit the top guys, but you need at least one or two anchors, I think, at least as teams and pitchers are currently constructed to be able to support the closer who only throws 55 innings a year. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that there are going to be, and maybe like just as they're, you know, like Justin Verlander's workload is not that dissimilar to what it was 15 years ago or the Justin Verlander equivalent um, who was around right before Verlander himself came up, you know, maybe the top end guys top out at, you know, the Scherzers, they top out at 220 as opposed to like Roy Halladay topping out at 250 or 260. Um, But that's not going to change that much. Right. And I think the same, because there are, you know, there are people who are physically capable of throwing 220 top end innings and you're not going to use less of Justin Verlander, you know, because you need to use less of Lance McCullers to keep him on the mound. Um, and so that's not going to change it. In a similar vein, I don't think the one inning closer is going to change that much because there are some pitchers, Diaz and Chapman, who you mentioned, and others who are excellent in that role. And they are at their best in that role to get three outs at a time with a with a clean inning to come into. And, you know, it's I think teams are they're becoming less axiomatic. I don't know if they are, but they should be less axiomatic about trying to find uh 
you know, trying to find, try, instead of trying to fill 12 round holes, you find, you, you drill holes that suit each of the 12 pegs you have. And so some of those, you're going to get the occasional Justin Verlander or 200 inning worker, worker starter. You're going to get the occasional uh, one inning closer and everybody else is just sort of going to find a role that suits them. And so you mentioned the Rays, and I think like this is what the future looks like because they built their rotation for all the talk about the opener. It's a pretty traditional rotation, at least when everybody's healthy. I mean, the problem right now is that Blake Snell is on the IL. Tyler Glass now is on the IL. Brandon McKay, who's a traditional starter, uh, is back down in the minor leagues. Yanni Chirinos, who started out as a swing man and sort of pitched his way into a traditional uh, starter's role, is on the IL. So like four of their top five starting pitchers are not in the majors right now. And they've managed to figure out, you know, sometimes Diego Castillo comes in for the save. Sometimes he opens, sometimes Ryan Yarborough starts. Sometimes he comes in after an opener. They figured out a way to get four innings at a time out of Jalen Beeks once or twice a week when maybe he might not be up to trying to be that 182 hundred inning guy. Um, they're just fine. I mean, this is the whole ball game now is, and teams are getting better about, the whole ballgame now, I should finish that sentence, is figuring out ways to, like, recognizing that every player is flawed and putting them in a position to uh, to minimize their flaws and maximize their strengths. And this is something that the Astros did very, very well with position players the year they won the World Series. You see other teams rewriting their lineup pretty much every every game. Um, and the, I think the Rays are doing a pretty good job of this with their pitching staff and finding ways to, you know, and maybe one of those guys, maybe Chirinos or Yarborough comes out and surprises you and you can give them more responsibility. Um, but this is, uh, you know, as much as plan A was a fairly traditional starting rotation with maybe one spot reserved for an opener, that's not the way uh, things have gone. And I think as teams get smarter, teams become more cautious about overusing pitchers, uh, maybe a little bit more they learn how to use the the option rules so they can have, you know, essentially run, use 12 roster spots to essentially run like a 16-man pitching staff with guys coming up and down. I think that the teams are getting deliberate enough uh, that they're able to, to, you know, move guys up and down from the minor leagues and fill out that that need for innings without having every pitcher they need on the active roster at the same time. Your point about Yarbrough is shrewd. His ability to take on more responsibility. He has, among pitchers with at least 100 innings this year, he has allowed the lowest OPS of any pitcher in baseball. And Tampa has seen his success, and he has now started his last three games and been awesome in those three games. So I don't think, I think your analogy about drilling holes is right. He's not locked into his role if he proves that he can take on more responsibility or succeed differently. I have two further thoughts on this. The first is that it's important, I think, to mention that we're having this conversation against a backdrop in which relievers this season are on pace to finish with a higher ERA than starters for the first time you know, since relievers became a thing. And there's been some work done, like Craig Ed- Edwards at Fangraphs has written about, how this is basically just because low-leverage relievers have been much worse. High and medium-leverage relievers have been basically... Not quite as good as they've always been, but they still have the advantage over starting pitchers. It's the really back end guys, the mop up guys at, at the end of the bullpen who and are more elevating, position players than ever. Yeah, who are elevating relievers ERA. So I think we're already seeing some of the strain as more and more innings are distributed democratically. Uh, 
Uh, also, as we mentioned, I think a week or two ago about what might happen if there's any future expansion on home run totals. I think any future expansion would even further dilute the pitching population and make maybe the third time through the order penalty a little less severe because the relievers you're going to bring in aren't as good. And that brings me to the last point, which is a lot of what I've been thinking about the future of pitching has been centered not even on guys who are in the major leagues right now and how they can adapt to the changing environment, but guys in the minor leagues and guys in college and high school who will be professional players in the 2030s. And it's easy to, I think, extrapolate based on what we're seeing now. And I wouldn't be surprised if most pitchers in the future are three innings guys, but also like in college and high school, I think there's such a much bigger gap between the best pitchers and like the sixth best guy on the staff. I haven't seen the study at all, but I would imagine that like the advantage of bringing in a reliever versus letting a good high school pitcher throw a third or fourth time through the order probably isn't there like it is in the major leagues, just because those back end guys aren't as good. So I think you'll still see pitchers growing up throwing a hundred pitches a game and won't necessarily see that selective adaptation until the minor leagues anyway that you're already seeing. Yeah. I mean, Anecdotally, I don't have any data on this, but just by virtue of having watched a lot of college baseball over the years, it's it it is pretty much like that. That only like the top end programs have more than five or six good pitchers. And so you're not going to see that parade of of guys going in and gassed up and throwing one inning at a time. I do want to circle back to your point about reliever ERA. You know, I don't I don't know that it's like I, I think that. This is one of those things that like the bullpenning trend just the and this has always felt like this from the way it was articulated from day one. It felt like a very saber 1.0 argument that like this is what the data says. This is and just just sort of very inflexible. And I think we're start and when you start applying statistical or mathematical studies and like turning that into real world practice, that's going to change the environment that you operate in to the point where maybe like by implementing this, this empirically based plan, you change the world. So the empirics don't support it anymore. And so as we see one inning relievers or if, if everybody could throw 95 with a slider, then nobody could throw 95 with a slider, you know, and you can't just turn every quad a prospect into a lights out seventh inning guy. And I think we're, we're realizing one, the limits of that two, the inconsistency of pitchers who have made these gains in the short term. And it's just not, sometimes it's just not durable. I think most of the time it's just not durable. And so, you know, you wind up with, with pitchers who are effective, uh, maybe one year and not the next or one outing and not the next. And that's just gotta be a huge headache for managers. And so, I think that the bullpen ERA, I think there probably is something to uh, teams within games are getting, they're getting more aggressive. I would say almost too aggressive in terms of punting games where they know they've got very little shot of winning. Um, and so you'll see a reliever just wear it the, in a way that you might not have five years ago. But uh, yeah, I think that we are sort of running out of good relievers and that's going to necessitate another change in, in the way that pitchers are used. So I think that we're going to like, we're at a tipping point, like you said, of, of more and more pitchers throwing fewer innings individually. But even as everybody catches onto that and adapts, the next set of circumstances that necessitate a systemic change are going to be developing. And the team that recognizes that and anticipates that is going to be at a huge advantage, just like you see the A's were last year, the Rays are now. And it requires teams to be smart and to understand 
both why these strategies work and how to most successfully deploy them, like just looking at what the raisonnés have done and thinking, okay, an opener works is not going to work if you don't have the personnel to make that work. I remember watching a Pirates-Dodgers game from earlier this year in which the Pirates were facing Walker Bueller and they had uh, Stephen Brault, I think, lined up to start. So instead, they ended up using an opener, except that opener was Michael Feliz and the Dodgers have good left-handed hitters at the top of the lineup. So Feliz faced like Max Muncy and Cody Bellinger and Corey Seager, and he allowed five runs without getting out of the first inning that game was lost you know before Stephen Brault could even enter so sure the opener works when you have someone like Chad Green throwing in the first inning because he can get anyone out and then the lineup might not look as good when you're facing the lesser Yankees pitchers in the third and fourth inning but you need to put in a good pitcher as the opener because the whole reason that works is that the first inning has the best hitters on the team and the Pirates just seemingly didn't understand that so I think that illustrated in my mind like Yes, this, as you said, this might make sense from the data perspective, but it requires actually intelligent human implementation to carry out that intended effect. Yeah, I mean, that that has always been the the thing. One thing that, I mean, we're running out of time, uh, but this has actually been a, a far more robust conversation than I anticipated. Um, and this is like not entirely to your point. I would like to see a distinction, like a greater distinction made between the bullpen game, which has always existed, and the opener. Uh, we need to figure out a good definition. Well, uh, it just feels like the opener is somebody like you do the the curly Ogden maneuver that you bring in. Well, maybe, you know, maybe you announce what you're going to do before the game. It doesn't have to be anything that dramatic, but you bring in the the right handed uh, right handed one inning guy to pitch the first. And then you bring in the lefty to deal with the, the next four or five innings, as opposed to like there's a distinction between one inning and then a block of twice through the order and one inning and or just a series of one inning or two inning relief appearances throughout the game. So right. I I would like to see more care taken. Uh, yeah, every know. every article you read that tries to analyze the actual on field effects of the opener has to first spend like three paragraphs defining the parameters of what games that they looked at. And I wish there were easier ways to filter. Yeah, I the mean, unfortunately, that's what you have to do. We're still at a point where it's. I mean, the opener is is quickly becoming one of those buzzwords that's that's useless because it's so ill defined and and gets tossed around by people who don't really know what it means. So, kind of um, like sabermetrics. Yeah, this is just sort of a this is just sort of an, an idle gripe, and I apologize for griping idly, but uh, I just felt this in my soul and needed to share it with the congregation. So, I guess this is a bullpen game of a podcast, right? Because this is not you're not just coming in for 20 minutes and then I'm going to have somebody else talk to me for an hour and a half. This is just a, a series of, of equal appearances, right? This is, I listen this is to you and game. Grant and Ben talk for an hour and a half, but I'll listen to you later when uh, this pod goes up. Let me tell you what, Bobby will not edit me talking to Grant and Ben for an hour and a half. So <laughs> we're, we're going to keep it short, but uh, yeah, this has been uh, uh, a fun discussion and we'll, uh, we'll talk again next week when we have expanded rosters and even more opportunity for bullpen games. When was the last time you thought about your tires? Tires are what makes a difference in how your car feels and drives. And since 1960, Discount Tire has been keeping customers safe by taking care of all your tire and wheel needs. 
With more than 1,000 locations across 34 states, their main focus is your safety and the safety of everyone else on the road. Discount Tire provides tire rotations, balancing, free flat repairs, free air checks, and more. And because safety is so important, they provide free tire safety inspections. Discount Tire also has the lowest prices on the best and largest selection of tires and wheels. They'll even make personalized recommendations for you based on your zip code and driving preferences. So whether you need an air check or a set of tires and wheels, Discount Tire can help you get back on the road with peace of mind and change to spare. Visit DiscountTire.com to shop, research, and purchase your tires today. You can even make an appointment to skip the lines. That's DiscountTire.com. Discount Tire, they'll get you taken care of. All right, I am very pleased to welcome back to the pod uh, staff writer at The Athletic, uh, Bon Vivant, San, San Francisco Giants expert, a uh, man who once loaned me hand warmers at the World Series uh, to keep me from freezing to death, Grant Prisby. Grant. How are you doing? I, I bought extra hand warmers because I wanted to be like uh, the hand warmer fairy, just going around sprinkling mirth and warm palms throughout the auxiliary press box. My gratitude is never ending. I think that I, you know, I think I've, I've expressed that over the years, uh, the esteem in which I, I hold you and the, the great respect and reverence I have for, for your work. Now, this is going to be like a, a classic, like jaded baseball writer question, but which world series was this? Was this, this was Chicago, Chicago yeah, this or was this not Cleveland in LA one? Let's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was wild that was let's see la was like 110 degrees or something and you went to houston to cool off because it was only well, it was like five. that was a wild yeah. yeah that was a wild uh world series yeah enjoyable. i did uh did not need hand warmers at that one that yeah that definitely was a wild world, world series but that's not what we're here to talk about what we're here to talk about is aesthetics uh specifically okay Baseball has had a big aesthetic weekend, uh, if you could call it that. Uh, players weekend with the all-white teams and the all-black teams. And uh, I wanted to talk to you specifically about this because this is sort of a weird, silly thing. And while Ben is very weird, he's not silly. So, I, you know, I needed somebody else who could communicate with me on on that wavelength. So, you know, where are you on, I guess, the, the special uniforms and, and these in particular? Oh, let's see. Aesthetics. Okay. <clears throat> Hold on. Webster's defines aesthetics as of relating to or dealing with the... No, I'm teasing. Um, The aesthetics. The aesthetics of baseball uniforms. I am generally okay with baseball screwing around and sh- doing new things and trying and shooting their shots. But we can all agree that those uniforms were abysmal. I mean, we can all agree that the the players weren't opening up their lockers and going, oh, hell yeah, it's my weekend. Like, those were just objectively bad by any measure. No, I don't think so. And I think I'm I'm with you, Like, I've tried not to complain too much about this because baseball is sort of so constitutionally conservative that whenever they try something weird and it doesn't work, they, they, you know, run back home to mama and never try anything again. And, you know, it's not like the, the last <laughs> couple years worth of players weekend jerseys were revolutionary, but they were fun and colorful and, and a nice change of pace. And the, I mean, the black and whites were, I mean, you couldn't read the the team names. You couldn't read it. It was just, and it was jarring. At, but at the same time, like, I'm glad they tried it. And now they know they don't, you know, now everybody knows they don't work and they're not going to do it again. And, you know, maybe we'll try something else weird. That'll be better. Because I think one thing that gets lost is like, you know, 
comedy is tragedy tragedy plus time like a uh, a uh, a classic uniform like the revered throwback is an ugly uniform plus time sure yeah we're talking like the the brown padres that is exactly the, the orange the astros examples i was going to bring up like people are are nostalgic for like the the uh late 90s diamondbacks uniforms are you kidding me like I lived through the nineties <laughs> and I remember idiots. how weird and gaudy everything was, and, you know, but like, I appreciate that baseball introduced purple into its color palette. That was certainly a, a nice change of pace. Um, but no, I mean, it's, I, I wear a beard usually, uh, and I put on like a throwback devil rays Jersey from 98 and the hair from the sides <laughs> of my beard fell off. And I was instantly in a goatee. And it was, I wanted to sue somebody. How could this happen? But no, you can't wear a beard with those jerseys. It has to be a goatee, a Ken Caminiti special. That's something that, when are goatees coming back? I had a goatee in college. I think that was a, I don't know. Speaking of of mixed (laughs) results. It's going to be, you know, know, it's going to be at some point. uh, You know, big statements. Uh, But yeah, I wouldn't mind that coming back. (laughs) No, I, I, Eventually it will. Eventually, you know, people are going to be 20 years old and laughing at beards. They're going to look at all these pictures. Look at these idiots. Charlie Blackman, check this out. Look at this guy. Uh, And then they'll have goatees and we'll be old. Look at your goatee. What are you, some sort of jet skier? But, you know, it'll it'll make sense to them. And that's how the world works. Every time this happens, every time baseball screws around with the, the uniforms and we see some experimentation, um, certainly at the college level, like, and it looks like there's experimentation at the minor league level, but honestly, it's all gimmick uniforms, like focus group to hell by the same PR company. Um, I just like, I want a little more color. You know, we talk, I feel like I talk, I rope some, somebody into the pod to talk about this every couple months, but every team is red, white, blue, and black almost, uh, exclusively, you know, I, and that's what makes sure. You know, everybody loves the A's jerseys. Everybody loves um, the Orioles jerseys because they don't like they deviate from the expected color schemes. And I don't know, you know, there are some teams where you can, you know, I wouldn't change a thing about the Dodgers or the Yankees or um, or the Cardinals, for instance. Um, But, you know, sometimes it's almost hard to tell whether you're watching the Braves or the Indians or the Twins or, you know, or the Phillies or the Cubs or uh, or the Rangers. And so we just have like four or five teams that all use the same shade of red and blue and they all have similar looking alternate uniforms. And just, you know, we don't get as much variation as much like distinctiveness as I feel like we could be getting out of, out of, uh, you know, baseball's aesthetic palette. Uh, I agree. And, and the, the analogy I made recently with the players weekend jerseys was, uh, that it's like Al Gore trying to rap, you know, on, on the campaign trail. Like, it's like, Oh, that's cool. It's different. It's fine. But you don't, you know, that's just terrible. Uh, in, in general, like baseball is kind of like an Al Gore. They're kind of just like a stuffy, you know, a politician, a center, middle of the road. And when it comes to the normal uniforms, that's why I was sort of really excited when the Marlins did their their thing when they uh, they got away from like the all teal and went with that sort of neon teal tinted uh, logo that, mm-hmm. that sort of the when they moved into Marlins Park was stuff. part of that rebranding. Yeah, I was kind of into that. Uh, the orange uniforms, not so much, uh, but their recent rebranding, I, I liked the Marlins. I can't remember exactly what year that was, but their most recent, I like, I, I graded the uniforms and they got pretty, pretty positive marks, I think. You know, I just wish that 
what one thing about like Al Gore rapping to indulge that that metaphor a little bit is uh <laughs> like people sniff out inauthenticity and but I would like the I'm not saying like every team has to try to be wacky, but like you're the Marlins. Like you play in Miami. You've only been around since the nineties. Like sure. the Marlins should be a little wacky. Like they shouldn't be as conservative as, and I mean, this right. is part of the reason that nobody takes Derek Jeter and Bruce Sherman seriously as owners is like, they're trying to be this classy, like Yankees South organization. That's just not who the Marlins have ever been. And so, you know, it's disappointing to see them. I think the, latest uniforms are a little bit of a missed opportunity because they've got that really nice like reddish pink color in their trim and if they had maybe gone a little bit Mm -hmm. more with that or you know even the and and i say this as somebody who who thinks the the rays current uniforms with all the different shades of blue and the sunburst pattern like they're very nice looking uniforms but like the rays are another weird sort of central florida uh team that that has made it has always done things differently and so i would you know navy does not you know navy doesn't really communicate that to me it's as nice looking as those uniforms are in a vacuum um as opposed as opposed to to arizona which are uniforms everybody everybody hates and i love because they're inventive and they introduce new colors like we haven't seen that color green and uh in baseball uniforms in a long time so you know i Maybe this is just the outgrowth of a team that, or uh, outgrowth of a sport that, for the first hundred years of its existence, had one team wear white and the other team wear gray. You know, just as a, a matter of course, and we're just taking baby steps beyond that. And I'm not saying like we need to go to polka dots or argyle or anything like that. But although, <laughs> if somebody wants to, like, I think that could be pretty cool. It, it- they went plaid. Someone just goes full plaid. I would be into that. Uh, I will disagree with you. I, I do think the Diamondbacks uniforms are an abomination. I the the max or the match of like the teal with the uh, Sedona red, and then the uniforms that have just D backs on the front because they can't fit the that. I will name not on defend. a jersey. I, I'm with uh, you on that. It, it it's all a mess. It's all a mess. At the same time, I mean, yeah, I I do appreciate that. It's just a little bit different. And I can appreciate the the little bit different. Whereas, uh, you know, you've got some of the some of the classic uniforms that they're not going to change. Like you're not going to change the Yankees. You're not going to change the Dodgers. Uh, you know, the Giants will make minor tweaks if that. But if you're a team like uh, Diamondbacks or the Marlins, like you're saying, just just sort of go for it. I think that's okay. Um, I'm looking through now. I'm, I'm on like SportsLogos.net, searching through, looking for the best examples. Um, yeah, the Rays are okay. Uh, the Orioles you mentioned, I, I like the Twins. I like them leaning mm-hmm. into the purple. But there isn't there isn't like that one you know knockout uniform that's not a classic. I think that that kind of uh, frosts our brain over because we're so used to the classics. Of course, the Yankees have a great uniform. It's, it's the classic Yankees uniform. So it, it's hard for us to, to kind of step out of that box we've created. And it for takes it. It does take something, you know. It's, to really knock people over like the, the A's Kelly green alternates, for instance is, but that's outside. And, you know, you talk about teams with classic design language, you know, the, they've had the same color scheme since what, like the, the end of their time in Kansas city, certainly the entire time they've been in Oakland, but like their, their colors, it, their, uh, their, the font for the word marks has not really changed that much over the past 50 years. Just the colors they've used have been unique to them. And I think that that's, that's been very 
you know, and Oakland, you know, you would know more about Oakland than I would, but that seems like it suits the place where they are uh, as much as the wacky Marlins uniforms did with uh, did with Miami. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, there's like a classic to Oakland that that fits with yeah, it's a historic franchise that's maybe moved around a little bit, but it's a it's a classic match yeah, for a classic and franchise. It, you know, I don't know if there's and you'll see, you know, like Pittsburgh being yellow and black, for instance. Like you you'll see teams sort of uh experiment and actually, you know what, the Pirates have actually done a pretty good job over the past twenty years of keeping things contemporary while still staying true to their own uh design language but yeah it's tough like you mentioned the twins and i like this new set of twins uniforms you know the twins or the rays it's just tough to really to really stand out in red white and blue anymore and that fits in with what i think are the most boring uh uniforms in baseball for a team that could have reinvented itself in different ways and i don't know how you know i'm not a, a design person i can't point fingers and say i could have done this much better but the nationals their uniforms are like the nationals park of uniforms their their name is the nationals and i get the historic connections to that you know that was the nickname back when they were the senators and stuff like that but it's it's all boring and when you look at their uniforms it's red white and blue i get it it's the connection it's the nation's capital but it's boring and you've got uh just a very simple washington on the road jerseys you've got the walgreens w on the home jerseys it's it's a combination that's just sort of i don't know it's it's wonky it's it's like a team designed to play in front of wonks it's it is i mean the nationals are just sort of a club for lobbyists you know (laughs) i I think that actually does fit and you know them being sort of boring conservative and being red white and blue i don't mind them doing it you know i mind like why does cleveland need to be red white and blue why does minnesota need to be red white and blue that's a good point. Maybe they should be mad at those yeah. teams and like, okay, screw you. We should have never mind that those teams got to those colors enough. first, but just by virtue of having been around yeah. longer. And same with like the Texas Rangers. Like I like their uniforms. You know, their whole thing is like Texas state flag. And so I understand that. You know, sometimes I'm not saying like every team has to be purple and green. I, it's just, you know, like Minnesota, you look at the Vikings with they've, they've made purple their own thing or the wild they've had their own. Uh, very specific color scheme um, or the Timberwolves who've done all sorts of cool things in like teal and black and, and sort of the, the green colors that they've used uh, you know, there's no real reason for the twins to be red, white, and blue apart from the, the constitutional conservatism that I was mentioning, you know? So I, I recognize that griping about the players weekend uniforms and then saying to, you know, the league or teams need to be more inventive. Like I recognize the the mixed message that that's sending, but sure. I'm, I'm willing to suffer. I just wonder what the next, well, I actually don't wonder what the next uh, great classic baseball uniform is going to be. It's going to be the Diamondbacks uniforms right now. Uh, no, it's going to be the turn ahead, the clock uniforms with like Ken Griffey in the backwards hat. <laughs> We are the clock is ahead, my friend. Like, I think we're closer. <laughs> this is one of those things that, like, we're closer to the year those uniforms were supposed to be from than we than we are to uh, the date that they were debuted. If we're not there, we're oh, close. Wasn't it supposed to be like 2042 yeah. or something? Something like that. You're probably right. It's probably distressingly close to the future that that, that was supposed to I'm be. I'm just saying, we are not that far from you paying a 14 year old with a goatee and a uh, mint green Diamondbacks uh, hat to like wash your car or mow your lawn. 
Oh my goodness. Now that, that is a good point. You know, I'm actually on uh, sportslogos.net backslash uniforms uh, just because I, I, I'm now, I'm into this and I'm looking at, they've got, they have a jersey stats per color and it breaks it down by games. And so you have white jerseys, the most popular, then grays, the second most, you'd figure that. Then it goes navy, black, red, royal, cream. And it starts going down the list. And then you get to powder blue, graphite, orange, graphite. Gr- green, teal, brown, camo, and yellow. And yellow has only been used for eight games, and I couldn't figure out what that was. So I clicked Probably on it. Probably Oakland, and right? it's those. It's those classic Kent to Colvey pirates. Oh, really? Like, oh, right. The, yeah. With the yellow stripes on the hat. And those are badass. And I guess that like brings it back to the Padres Astros thing we were talking about earlier, where were those hideous at the time? Because they're badass now. I think everybody, I mean, I, the pirates were sort of, uh, they were like the Oregon football team of, of the day, as I understand it. But yeah. like the, you know, this was not too far. This was when everybody was was going with the the powder blue road uniforms, and uh, the Phillies had the the all burgundy, the whatever night special it was. I think the Orioles had an all orange uniform, so it wasn't as out there then as it seemed to me as a kid in the nineties, like watching Ken Burns on Willie Stargell, and like what the hell are they wearing? But I mean, it, like I said, ugly uniform plus time equals classic. Yeah, that's a good point. In going through some of the oranges, uh, I will say that they're, not all oranges are created equal. The Giants orange that I grew up with, I, I really enjoy. I have a hat that has, it, it's got the orange bill, and it's, it's going to be from 82, circa that, that kind of Giants team. And the current orange is just off enough to where it drives me up the wall. Uh, they will play on Friday nights. They call it Orange Friday. And the orange that they have now is just tweaked enough to where it bugs the hell out of me. Uh, and I prefer generally the orange that the Astros use. And maybe that's heretical. The orange that the Orioles use uh, is, is pretty solid. It's but the brighter. ones that the Giants yeah. do is just, just a little off. And that's sort of – and the the Giants, I don't know if, if sort of the – um, the acclaim has worn off of those uniforms now that we're a little farther removed from like the World Series. But I remember when they were new, like it just I didn't I was one of the few people who didn't like them. one because they didn't have the the names on the back of the jerseys or at least the home jerseys. The other thing yeah. is like it just felt like. It felt like David Fincher was filming them, like all the color was just a little bit desaturated, like you were saying, from from what I would have liked. Like instead of the white home jerseys, they had the cream and they had that slightly darker orange. And it just, you know, there's something like it made me I don't know if there actually is something about the the lights at the the park in San Francisco that it just seems a little bit darker uh, on television. But it's it would. This is this is sort of all of a piece, and you know certainly those are distinctive uniforms that are that are part of uh, the Giants' whole design aesthetic, and you know, very very popular certainly. Uh, but they were just like everything was just a little muted. I would like to be just a little bit more bold from yeah. a you know from a perspective of color. I think that's so much of it is just I- just turn it up a little bit. I could see that, and I also have a little bit of inside information to drop uh, on this podcast in that uh, the Giants, one of the principal owners, he's credited with saving the Giants from moving to Tampa, Peter McGowan. He was the CEO of Safeway. Um, But he was like the face, the public face of the Giants for a long time. And I just found out that he 
hated, viscerally hated these black alternate jerseys that the Giants had around, oh, I don't know, the, the 2000s at some point. And it stuck with him that Barry Bonds hit his 71st home run in 2001 in one of those black jerseys. So every picture, you, every video, you have Bonds swinging the bat in this black jersey, this very boring, you know, turn During of the millennium. mid-2000s, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Total of its time. And he was sort of like pressured into it. No, 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 these sell well. The kids love them. The players love them. We got to have the black jerseys. They're hip, baby. They're hip. And he, it just bothered him until his dying days that, that Barry Bonds hit his 71st home run in one of those dippy jerseys. I'm just thinking about how wonderful that would be to have like the thing that bothered me on my deathbed. I, I well, yeah, I actually the second I said that I regret it because he probably wasn't. Uh, that wasn't the exact verbiage I was going for, but it bugged mm-hmm. him for a long time, is what I was told. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, that's fair enough. You know, I I think that that's uh, that's the risk of being like too current is uh, is you wind up having something that looks dated in 20 years when all the kids with goatees are, are coming back around to, you know, the old stuff. Um, yeah. I, so before I, I let you go, I did want to mention, you know, not everybody needs a uniform to play baseball. Christian Yelich is going to be in the, the ESPN body issue. And we saw some some leaked photos. Have you seen uh, the leaked photos of, of Christian Yelich in the buff? Uh, well, I'll, I'll tell you how I did see them is that uh, I was sitting next to Andy Baggerly last night in the, the press box at, at, uh, before the Giants game. And he says, oh, Christian Yelich naked. And <laughs> what do you do when someone says Where, that? Here? It's like, <laughs> like someone's saying, don't think of the Stay Puff Marshmallow. It's like you're going to look mm-hmm. and go, ah. Um, you know, it, obviously, he's, he has a, a strong athletic body that I'm envious of. But I'll tell you my biggest problem with it is that he looks like Brandon. And you don't know who Brandon is because I worked with Brandon for about seven or eight years. Uh, I called him Sparky. He was a younger guy. He was a lot of fun to work with. But he looks just like Christian Yelich. So when Christian Yelich made the majors, to the point where my wife, who, who met him a couple of times at company Christmas parties, was like, oh, my gosh, that's Sparky. That looks like Sparky. And I, I said, oh, my God, that is who that looks like. And so every time I see Christian Yelich, I think, ah, that looks like Brandon. That looks like my ex-coworker. So now I see him just like ripped with his like, you know, bulbous buttocks in perfect classical Greek form. It's a little disconcerting. That's all. Well, I'm glad that ESPN is bringing you and your former coworkers closer together. I would certainly feel like a, a, I don't know if tighter is the word I would use in this situation, but, you know, a, a bond. Well, you know, I'm going to yeah. text him at the second this podcast ends, just a picture of this and be like, hey, hey, bro, you're looking good or something like looking that. Looking good. You know, yeah. like, yeah, you know, all bodies are beautiful in their own way. But, you know, you can tell that Brandon is really taking care of himself. And yeah, and uh, kudos himself to him. up. up nice. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, I think you clean up nice, Grant. And I appreciate you for or appreciate you taking the time to to come and chat with me about uh, about topics, both interesting and uncomfortable. Absolutely. That is my brand. All right. And we're going to wrap up the show with a man for whom every day is opening day. No, it's not Nick Castellanos. It's Ben Lindbergh. Ben. Hello. How are you? Uh, I I feel fresh as, as uh, the first week of April. Thanks for asking. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you want to talk about the race, uh, <laughs> so to speak. 
Yes, the race. race. We don't even have to. <laughs> it's the main draw in the baseball standings. for the rest of the regular yeah. season, as far as I'm concerned. The battle for the bottom, the race for the 2020 number one draft pick, which is really down to two teams, two top contenders right now, the Tigers and the Orioles, who are battling it out for the title of most terrible team in baseball. And I think the most exciting part of this is mark your calendars, September 13th through 16th in Detroit. These two teams will be facing off against each other in a four-game series, so they control their own destinies when it comes to getting this number one pick. They will be going head-to-head for the honor, and right now, I think you'd have to say that the Tigers probably have the edge here. I don't know that it's clear that they're actually the inferior team, but in terms of the standings, they have a two-and-a-half game lead on the Orioles, so to speak, in the race to be the worst team in baseball, and both of these teams have been here before. I mean, they know what it's like to be in this situation because obviously the Tigers had the number one pick in 2018 and they picked Casey Mize and the Orioles had the number one pick this year and they picked Adley Rutschman. So they both know what it's like to be in this situation. They are seasoned veterans when it comes to being the worst team in baseball and they are really taking it to new heights or new lows this year. I I wasn't sure that we would see teams challenge last year's Orioles and Royals when it came to ineptitude. But we have this year's Orioles and this year's Tigers that are really duking it out for the title. Friend, in in 2019 in America, there are no depths of ineptitude that go beyond (laughs) that ought to go beyond our imagination at stake is uh, the hand in in draft hood of either Georgia right hander Emerson Hancock or your buddy. Arizona State first baseman Spencer Torkelson. Oh, is that right? I'll take yeah, your word for gonna, it. Yeah, he's going to he's going to be up at the the top of this draft class. So, the torque is on, is going to be on the loose in one of these cities uh in well, 2021 I, I or 22. He's got to go to the Tigers then because they have Spencer Turnbull. So we need Spencer Turnbull and Spencer Torkelson on the same team. Turnbull and Torkelson sounds like a <laughs> sounds like a, a a company in Alabama that made like water heaters and civil war ironclads yeah it'll be the the killer bees of the 2020s the spencer t's oh boy i'm sorry i'm just ruminating on that for for a minute just go on without me um yeah well these teams right now it's hard to say which is actually worse because detroit as we speak they have a 305 winning percentage baltimore has a 328 and Baltimore's got a two and a half game lead in the race for the worst over Kansas City. And then Miami's another two and a half games back of them. They would be strong contenders in most years. But this year, when we have this stratified league with these really great teams at the top and these really terrible teams at the bottom, the Orioles and the at the uh, the Royals and the Marlins are just outclassed. I think when it comes to being very bad at baseball. Now, if you look at some of the underlying numbers, the Orioles actually have the worst run differential in baseball, just by two runs, two runs worse than the Tigers. The Orioles have the worst base runs record. I think the Tigers maybe have the worst third order record. So they're really neck and neck here. This is going to come down to the wire, and the fact that they are playing each other just adds some intrigue to this race. One thing I think it's interesting is I don't know what is how big end like uh, like data about this, but the Orioles last year were the first team since the 2003 Tigers to fail to win uh, 50 games in a season, and the Tigers are currently on a pace for on pace for 49.4 wins as we <laughs> yes. as we record, and so and those Tigers are the last team just looking at this last team outside a strike season. 
since the mid-1960s Mets to fail to win 50 yes. games. So is this just like the stratification, the polarization of, of good teams and bad teams that there's no sense? Like if you're going to finish in last place, you might as well get your money's worth out of it. You know, do you think there's something to that? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the interesting things to talk about with these two teams, other than just sort of mocking them and being merciless in our scorn, is the question of whether they are tanking and to what degree they are tanking. Because obviously, they're the worst teams in baseball, but both of them came by it almost honestly because they had a period of several years, each of them, where they were among the best teams in baseball. And I would love the Royals into this too, like particularly the Tigers and the Royals, uh, I would describe this way. Yeah. And so today we describe this as tanking and maybe it's fair and accurate to say that, but really this is an age old thing in baseball, which is that for the most part, teams do not get good and then stay good forever. Like the Yankees and the Dodgers seem to do. Most teams, they get good for a while. They put together a a great core and they supplement that core. And then that core gets old and they have trouble replacing those stars with younger stars. They start trading their, their you know, they draft lower. They start trading their prospects away for, you know, the guys who can keep that, that team alive a little bit longer. I mean, this is sort of what we're seeing happen with the Cubs right now. Um, It's very difficult to build a sustainable winner that is just good forever because, yeah, the the more successful you are, the more success you have at the major league level, the harder it gets to keep acquiring talent and working that talent in because you're expected to win right away. So that makes it harder to break in rookies and you get lower draft picks and lower draft pools and it just becomes tough to do. And, And, you know, it's just hard. I mean, when a team puts together a really good collection of players, it's just hard hard to replicate that. So I have sympathy, I think, for these teams and for the Royals because they were good and they had some success and the Royals won a World Series and the other teams at least got into the playoffs multiple times and they made runs at it and then they failed to sustain it. And you could fault them maybe for how those runs ended. I mean, Dave Dombrowski obviously kind of has a track record of running farm systems into the ground and being competitive at the major league level. And then he moves on to the next team and does that somewhere else. And so he left the Tigers farm system in a sorry state because he was constantly trading whatever prospects they did develop for help at the major league level. And maybe that was worth it. Maybe it wasn't. It would have been more worth it maybe if they had won a World Series. But, you know, they did what you can do. They they put competitive teams on the field and got to the playoffs. And I think the Orioles, you know, they also built good teams and then they got old. And you could make the case that both of these teams held on to their players a little too long, that maybe they should have started trading away guys and restocking the farm system before they actually did. But the Orioles, you could fault them certainly for not signing international players. Let's say that has been a a hallmark of their organization for years now. I think the positive note... that I could say about both of these teams is that their farm systems are recovering. I mean, it would be sad if they weren't given the state of their major league rosters, but right now Fangraphs ranks them as the 11th and 12th best farm systems in baseball. That's the Tigers and the Orioles respectively. So things are looking up. It's not like you can look at them, you know, they aren't the Padres or, or the Rays where you look at their collection of prospects or even the Dodgers for that matter, who are already great and seem to have more great players on the way. But at least it's not quite as fallow on the farm as it's been for several years now. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, the other thing is it just helps to be in the right place at the right time. And both of these teams got the number one pick when like there was a fucking monster out there. And so like, I think Casey Mize is like 
there is not a Casey Mize in, in every draft. And I, there is definitely not an Adley Rutschman in every draft. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's some of this that, that they, um, they have those top end prospects now by virtue of their draft position, which doesn't always happen. And, you know, I think the Tigers are, they're slowly rebuilding uh, their farm system. Uh, and you know, they've gotten back, like some of the things like, because they traded Justin Verlander in August back under the old rules, they couldn't get anybody off the Astros 40 man. And so mm-hmm. Daz Cameron and Franklin Perez, uh, Jake Rogers, like they took, they're a little bit farther out, which I I think like that could, that could end up uh, coming back to sort of vindicate that trade a little bit. Certainly you're not going to trade Justin Verlander and be happy with the return under any circumstances, but they mm-hmm. could end up getting the fruits of that trade on a better timeline for them when my, well, I mean, Mize has been ready for, for probably close <laughs> to a year now and they're just not promoting him right. for, I mean, I suspect that they're not promoting him for, for service time considerations above all, or haven't done it yet. Um, I know mm-hmm. he's had some minor injuries this year. This is not the point, <laughs> but you know, there, you could sort of see it coming together a little bit for, for the Tigers and it'll only get better, you know, as college heavy as the top of the, of next year's draft is. So, mm-hmm. and the other thing is like, this is the natural life cycle. Like you said, like this is right. on some level how it's supposed to work when you have 30 teams in this closed system and no promotion and relegation in a draft and, and salary depression measures. And like everybody's supposed to get a turn more or less. And so the Tigers mm-hmm. had their turn and they, you know, from 06 to 2014 or so were one of the most successful teams in baseball. They had multiple stars at multiple positions. Like right. they didn't win a world series. I don't know. Like, like what, made them worse as a team than the Giants over that time or the Royals or, or, you know, some of the teams that actually did sneak into a title. Uh, But this is, I don't have any problem with this team being this bad for these reasons. And the same with the, Mm -hmm. with the Royals. And like you said, the Orioles to a lesser extent, you know, I, maybe that wasn't worth it uh, as much. And there was a lot more weirdness in the way that team was run at the top, even when they were doing well. But like, this doesn't bother me. This there's nothing artificial about this. They tried to compete as long as they could, and like that's a perfectly valid long term team building choice. Yeah, I think so too. There is uh, there's a lot of acrimony about tanking in baseball, and a lot of hand wringing, and a lot of criticism. And and I think some of it is probably fair, but some of it just I think kind of ignores the fact that there have always been bad teams. There have to be bad teams at at any given time. Some teams have to be terrible. Now maybe not quite this terrible. And sure, could the Tigers and the Orioles have? signed Dallas Keuchel or Craig Kimbrell or something or, you know, gone out and gotten a couple free agents. Yeah, they they could have. And maybe they could have made themselves into 55 win teams, 60 win teams. Uh, there's just no real payoff there. I, I don't think that there's anything they could have done if they had spent more money. Maybe the product on the field would be a, a little more entertaining. Maybe it would be a little more competitive. Maybe the fans of those teams would have a little more incentive to go out to teams, go out to games. But these were just not going to be good teams this year or last year or next year for a while. We could see this coming. It, it was something where even when these teams were good and were kind of at the end of their windows, 
you could project and you could say there's just no way around it. Like the Tigers are going to be bad for a while. The Orioles are going to be bad for a while. And the question is, how quickly can they pull out of it? And maybe they didn't act quickly enough. Maybe if they had been more proactive, if they had traded some of their guys, Manny Machado, whoever, you know, a year earlier or something, maybe you get more back and that's a, a springboard for the rebuild. I don't know. But it's not like they were the White Sox who had Chris Sale lying around or, you know, right. these really great young players on very attractive contracts that they could trade at the peak of their powers and get a whole lot of talent back. I don't think either of these teams fit that description because they really ran out the clock with the cores that they have. And they tried to keep those teams together as long as they could and field competitive clubs. And eventually it just stopped working. And that's the way of things. That's the way of the force. I I don't know what to tell you. So maybe the lows are lower than they have been at at other times and the highs are higher. And those things kind of go together, I think, because if you have the Astros and the Dodgers and the Yankees winning 100, 500 plus games, then you're going to have to also have some teams at the bottom end of the scale. And that's a shame for fans of those teams. But, you know, they had their moment in the sun. Yeah, I I think you bringing up the White Sox is smart because like when we talk about tanking in a pejorative way, uh, that's sort of, I think, what what we mean. Like there are some teams like even the Astros, like there was nothing when when Luna right. took over. Like I, sometimes like you just need to tear the house down and start completely from scratch. And so as painful as that was, I certainly don't think anybody uh, – would disagree with the results and you like there are definitely situations and I'm not like a hardcore anti-tanking person for this reason is that sometimes this is just the fastest you know like it might be painful in the short term but sometimes that is actually the fastest way to rebuild a team is to just Mm -hmm. rip up everything if you don't have you know anybody who's worth anything in a trade if you you know if you've got contracts on the books that are preventing uh spending you know I think sometimes I don't know. I don't need to go into the fact that I I think that sometimes that's a disingenuous excuse from ownership, but Mm -hmm. you know, that's particularly if a team gets to that situation because they had tried to win as long as possible and to keep a beloved core together as long as possible. And so the flip side is like, if you do what the White Sox did, where you have multiple prime cost controlled stars, like you tank so you can build a core of Quintana uh, Adam Eaton and Chris Sale. And if you blow that up or do what the Braves did, trading away Hayward and Kimbrell and the Uptons, uh, like you better fucking pull it off. You know, mm-hmm. like you better get back, get back to being good and soon. And so, you know, every what the Braves got there and the White Sox were, I don't know, they, how much closer do you think they look? And, and I say that as somebody who really liked the, what they got uh, in those trades and just some of those players haven't, you know, certainly the Giolito aspect and the, and Moncada look better than they did a couple years ago. But, you know, I don't know if they're substantially closer to mm-hmm. getting back to the World Series than they were four years ago. Yeah. And, you know, when we talk about this race for the number one pick, I'm I'm kind of being tongue in cheek because uh, I don't think these teams are really pulling out all the spot stops to be worse than each other. I don't think either of them will be trying to lose when they go head to head in September. That's something that we don't really see so much in baseball that maybe we do see in basketball. You know, baseball teams. I don't, typically I don't know that we see that in basketball, to be honest. Like it would make more I, sense in, in basketball. Yeah. I mean, there's a similar like clearing of the decks and maybe just a bad. Bass, 
well, I was about to say maybe a bad basketball team is like more obviously bad than a bad baseball team, but <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty obvious. I'm, I'm looking at I'm looking at the Tigers uh, yeah. roster right now, and uh, <laughs> it's it's not subtle. Maybe yeah. I'm wrong about that. Maybe that impulse yeah. is, is incorrect. Right. I mean, it would bother me if baseball teams were not playing their best players. Like if they were benching their best players yes. because they wanted to lose individual games, that would be a problem. If they are just not signing good players or or trading away good players, that bothers me a little less as long as there is a, a purpose to it and it's with a goal in mind. And I think the number one pick in baseball, it's obviously a less valuable prize than it is in other sports because the difference between the average outcome for a number one and number two pick, it, it's something you would certainly prefer to have the number one pick, but there's just still so much uncertainty and it's going to take time for those guys to get there usually. And that's not in itself enough to justify tanking or tearing down your team. You wouldn't do that just for the number one pick in baseball. The real benefit of rebuilding, I think, is that you get to change your timeline and you get to acquire talent that is going to be good a few years from now while other teams are trying to acquire talent that's good today. And so your needs match up and you can get rid of guys who are good right now and go get guys who will be good someday that a team that is currently contending doesn't need quite as much as you do. And so I think that's where the real benefit comes from. It's not from the number one pick, although that is obviously a, a slight advantage and you get more money to spend throughout the draft. And yes, you want that, but these teams are are terrible, not directly yeah, because it's not of worth the it number on one team. pick. Yeah, right. I, yeah. I, to that, I would add like, and this is why the Astros uh, and it was, you know, to a certain extent, the Braves as well have succeeded is you get playing time to develop your and like, I wish that like, quote unquote, tanking teams would take advantage of this more. I think that one team that's doing this for all the service time shenanigans around Vlad Guerrero, like the Blue Jays are doing this now, like they're blooding their their youngsters, their top prospects, getting them all together in a pot and mm -hmm. letting them face major league competition and grow. And to, you know, to a large extent, they've really risen to the to the challenge. But the other thing is you get to give chances to players who might turn out to be good. And this is. Like the Astros didn't win the World Series because they drafted Bregman and Correa and George Springer. They won the World Series because they brought like career middling prospect minor leaguers up and they turned into Jose Altuve and Colin McHugh and, uh, and Dallas Keuchel and Marwin Gonzalez. Like that's mm -hmm. the difference. And that's the tough thing to do. And I mean, the difference with the, the Tigers is, you know, is. I mean, you said like they could go sign guys like they got Josh Harrison, like nobody expected Josh Harrison was going to have a 219 OBP, uh, mm -hmm. for instance, this year in the the brief time he's played or, you know, same with like Jordy Mercer. But like you expect, you know, maybe Kristen Stewart comes into something or turns into something. Maybe uh, Jamer Candelario turns into, mm -hmm. into something. And so far, those guys have been kind of disappointing. And that's that's the tricky part now. And that's so important is like, you know. It's easy for us to say what you ought to do, but like how to actually find these players is is the whole proverbial ball game right now, and yeah. that's something that sep that still to this day separates. You know, we call them smart franchises. Maybe they're just lucky franchises to a, a certain extent. Like that's mm -hmm. the the big difference. And if you like really clearing the decks, if you can get players like that out of it, that's the biggest benefit for me. Even even beyond picking first instead of eighth.
Right. Well, the Orioles, of course, have imported Astros front office people, hoping that they can replicate the Astros player development success. Both of these two teams are early enough in this process, I think, that they're still sort of unwatchably bad. They're not at the point where the Blue Jays are, where you can tune in on any given day and see, oh, this is going to be the core of the next good team. You know, it might take a couple of years, but at least these guys are here and we get to see them improve on the job. You can't really watch the Orioles and the Tigers to see that. I mean, the yeah. the people on these rosters who are going to be part of the next good Orioles and Tigers teams, it's pretty few and far between. And for now, you're just sort of seeing the full spectrum of terrible possibilities because the Orioles can sort of score, but they can't pitch at all. And of course, they've allowed the most home runs any team ever has in a single season. And then the Tigers can pitch a little bit better, but they can't score at all. And I guess their best position player right now is Nico Goodrum. So it's sort of like each team is is terrible overall, but they have their specialties. They're things that they are particularly bad at. And I think in the Tigers case, that's something that they will have to watch and worry about because they are more of a pitching-centric team right now, and they have more of a pitching-centric farm system. The, yeah, between yeah, Mize so, and Matt Manning, yeah. Right, and so they've got to figure out where are the bats going to come from. Yeah, like you're saying, like the difference, like, uh, you know, I think Trey Mancini could end up being one of those players who might not have gotten a chance if the Orioles had gone out and really filled out that roster with, you know, Mm -hmm. just sort of below average veterans. Um, You know, they've got a couple guys like that, but John Means certainly sticks out. Uh, But the rest of the roster is in a state where I am happy to read about such successes in the paper <laughs> instead of uh, yeah. instead of tuning in to watch them every night the way that, that you might and I would argue like should with the Blue Jays. Yeah, well, mid September I'll be watching Tigers versus O's get psyched. You'll be the one. Uh, <laughs> All right. Well, maybe we can recap that then. All right. I don't know. Like, let's <laughs> let's we'll plan this. Talk about yeah, good let's, teams. You let, never know. No, well, I was going to say. We're going to talk about plenty of good teams down the stretch. Yeah. Zach can mm-hmm. talk about the good teams. Sure. Like, we really need somebody to 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 have fifth place in every division just really smothered. <laughs> so if you want to be the guy, you know, yeah. who, who wades through. I will be the seller specialist. There we go. All right. So uh, we'll be back uh, probably to talk about what, like the the Marlins and uh, um, the, well, we've talked about the Reds actually a fair amount on the show. You know, maybe we don't need that. So, all right. But we'll talk next week about something. Uh, Yes. And next time we talk about the Orioles, we will have to give more due to Big Mike Bauman, who is I I don't want to jinx it. It's been so good. Yeah, very good. <laughs> That's the future of the Orioles right the there. Day of the, like, the day of the draft, I said, I told Mal, like, I'm buying you a jersey as soon as uh, <laughs> as soon as he makes the majors. And it was a joke, and it is not a joke anymore. And, like, I'm – so we are making plans to, yeah. to have a big celebration when he hits the majors. I, I'm I, so I, excited. I admire your rooting for him because I would be conflicted if a, a player were coming up with my name and I were someone who also worked in baseball and I were looking forward to a future where I was constantly getting confused with that player for the rest so, of my career. So here's the thing. Like, there's already there already was a uh, a now retired baseball writer named Mike yes. Bauman, and so Spelled like if I can survive least, but, that, then yeah. then I can deal with that. The other thing, so like my major personal professional ambition is the most famous Mike Bauman on Wikipedia right now is a former East German terrorist, and uh, I want to beat him. Like, I yes, want to be the first Google result. But if I end up being second behind Big Mike. Then I can live with that. That's what I've decided. Okay. <laughs> are you the Are you the number one Ben Lindbergh? I think so. I don't know of any others. You must be. I, I think there's one on IMDb, but not an illustrious career. 
Okay. Well, when the MVP machine gets made into a book, then uh, you're you're going to be the first result there to or made, made, into, made into a movie. A movie. I yeah. made it into it's already a book. a book. I know. Yeah. I know. <laughs> All, All right. right. We'll talk, talk to you next, next week. week. Bye. That will just about do it for this week's episode of the Ringer MLB Show. Thanks as always to Zach and Ben for joining me, and thanks also to my special guest Grant Brisby, whose work you can find at the Athletic San Francisco, and whose musings you can find on Twitter uh, if you're willing to risk it at Grant Brisby. Thanks to Bobby Wagner for producing today's episode. Thanks to Griffin Cannon, Christian Yelich, and John Means for giving us stuff to talk about. And thank you for listening. On behalf of everyone here at the Ringer MLB Show, I'd like to wish you all an enjoyable and salubrious Labor Day, and we'll see you next time.